Hey, uh, right at the top of the episode, I wanted to just give a bit of a disclaimer here. Um, that uh, this, uh, So, I finished this episode of the Going Up cast, which you can listen to if, if you so desire, you know. Um, that is that is your choice. I will be the first to tell you, though, that this particular episode of the Going Up cast is not very good. It just isn't. Uh, it is not my best work. The The chapters are boring because 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a terrible book. Um, there's there's nothing fun in between, really. Um, just some, some kind of fluff story. Like, I'm not happy with this episode. Honest to God, I'm not. It's not very good. I wouldn't listen to it, personally, if it was me. Um, I want to put it up with this disclaimer because this is going to be the last episode of the Going Up cast for a little while. I need, to, I need to step away, I need to restructure, I need to retool, I need to reassess and figure out what makes me creatively happy. Because making this episode, particularly 105, making this episode was not fun, didn't make me happy, and I did the final product just to like have a thing to upload. And that's never the way I want to go about making these things. If I'm not happy with the final product, then you're not going to be happy with the final product. You know, if I'm not having fun, you're not having fun. No one has fun. It's shuck. It sucks and it's bullshit. So, yeah, that's... I'm just letting you know right at the right at the top of the gate that this isn't a great episode. It's just boring. Like, nothing happens. It's an hour and, like, 13 minutes of nothing happening. It's just a tremendous waste of time. So, yeah, um, there's not going to be an episode of the podcast for a while... Um, while I fucking figure this shit out, um, the audiobooks will keep going because that, uh, that's the, that's the thing. That's the interesting bit. The audiobooks I find really creatively, uh, satisfying and are so much fun to do. I absolutely love the audiobooks. And that's one of the reasons why the podcast leans so heavily on the audiobooks is because that is such a source of joy for me, unless it's 20,000 leagues under the sea, which I will finish. I'm I like I've started it. I'm almost done. It's a crap book and it's a trash book, but I will fucking finish that audiobook and the whole thing will just get uploaded on the main website and we'll just move on once the podcast restarts. Because it's just such tremendous trash and it's just lists of animals. Um and it's garbage. It's hot garbage. Um so yeah. Uh it's like it's like six in the morning. Uh I just woke up in like a blind fury and I was just like, I can't I can't put this up the way it is. So, here's the takeaway. Going up cast is going away for a while. I'm going to I'm going to reassess and restructure it. What it most likely will turn into is a podcast that is so sporadic in its uploads um that it only gets uploaded when I legitimately honest to fucking god have good things to talk about. It's kind of where I'm at. The audiobooks will continue. In many ways, that's what I want the new focus to be because I have so much fun with the audiobooks and the audiobooks can live in perpetuity. You know what I mean? Like getting into a podcast is so daunting at the start. It's like, oh, he has 105 episodes. Fuck, that's a lot of episodes. And I feel that for sure. But an audiobook, like, you know exactly what you're getting into. It's right there. Like you got, you know, 57 chapters of audiobooks. You'd be like, I was on chapter 18. And then you just re-resume. It's like, it's so much easier to sync your teeth back into personally um and on like like episode 87 of the, of the podcast so that's kind of that's kind of where i'm at so yeah 
Going Upcast is going away. This is going to be the last episode for a little bit. I mean, there could be one next week. I have no idea. I don't know how inspiration is going to strike me. Um, but, like, I need to feel that, that, that thrill again from creating something that I actually believe in and stand by. And I did not feel that with this podcast. And I don't want to upload garbage. That's why I did my YouTube channel. I uploaded garbage. There, was, there, was, there were several months when I did like seven videos a day. And I'd be a goddamn liar if I had told you those videos were good. They couldn't be. Seven videos a day? Just get go fuck yourself. There's no way those were good. They were trash and they were hot garbage and I hated them. Um, and it was just quantity over quality for sure. And I don't want to do that with this podcast. So I'm being I'm being incredibly honest with you all right now that this episode of the podcast is not very good. You can listen to it if you want to. I'm going to put it up in its entirety anyway because it's made. Um, and I, I, want, I want you to know what my my standards are. This far is far below it. This, this, is, this is far and away not what I want to do. So there you go. Um, yeah. I, I'll, I'll keep you guys posted as best I can um, and we'll just and we'll just see where it goes to be perfectly honest with you um, but I really wanted to I really wanted to be honest because god damn it's there's too much there's too much lying in this world and this is a terrible episode of the podcast audiobook chapters will continue in perpetuity because those are a lot of fun and as you find out, if you do listen to this episode of the podcast, I finished Brissinger like three days ago. Um, so that's, that's, those chapters are definitely going up. Um, but this, this, yeah, the podcast needs, needs to be restudied. Enough of me wasting, well, I mean, if you listen to the podcast, then you get another hour and 13 minutes of me wasting your time. Uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop and let the, the terrible episode of the podcast speak for itself. Thank you very much for listening. I will see you in audiobooks and the next time an episode of the Going Upcast is uh is made and isn't total garbage. Hello everybody and welcome to the Going Upcast, your weekly feel-good podcast where this week we continue our aquatic adventures with Captain Nemo and friends. I talk about my limits of audiobook recording and we review a brand new comic book. Pretty short episode this week in terms of content. I talk about a, uh, a perilous journey I went on a couple of days ago in terms of how many chapters I could read in a single day. I'm going to see if I can beat that record at some point, but you'll find out what that was here in a little bit. Brand new Critic Role uh, comic book, and I finished it, so we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. And three new chapters of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But before we get into that, if you like the Going Upcast and wish to support the Going Upcast, there's one really good way you can do that. You can go to patreon.com forward slash goingupcast. We become Patreon and at the $5 level and get access to the monthly live streams, the Pokemon Nuzlocke run, and all sorts of other fun stuff that's over there on the, on the Patreon site. And I hope you're all doing well. Um, it has been it has been quite the week for me. Uh, at the time of recording this, it's Friday, and I'm I'm very much excited to take a take a fucking weekend myself and just goddamn relax because it's been it's been a thing and it's been busy and I'm I'm dead to the world. So that for me, darling, let's get into the podcast. Start recording the new chapter, and the fucking fire alarm decided to go off in the middle of it, so I have to start over again. 
Chapter 26, a new proposition from Captain Nemo. On January 28th, in latitude 9 degrees, 4 feet north, when the Nautilus returned at noon to the surface of the sea, it lay... <sighs> in sight... Sorry, I just worked out too, so I'm out of breath slightly. It lay in sight of land some 8 miles to the west. Right off, I observed a cluster of mountains about 2,000 feet high, whose shapes were very whimsically sculptured. After our position fixed, I re-entered the lounge when our bearings were reported on the chart. I saw they were off the island of Ceylon, um, the pearl dangling from the lower lobe of the Indian Peninsula. I went looking in the library for a book about the island, one of the most fertile in the world. Sure enough, I found a volume entitled Ce Ceylon? Ceylon. Ceylon. And the Singhalese by H.C. Sir Esquire. Re-entering the lounge, I first noted the bearings of Ceylon, which antiquity lavished so many different names. It was located between latitude 5 degrees 50 feet, 55 feet, and 9 degrees 49 feet north. And between longitude 79 degrees 42 feet and 82 degrees 4 feet uh, east of the meridian of Greenwich, its length was 275 miles. Its maximum width was 150 miles. Its circumference was 900 miles. Its surface area 24,448 square miles. In other words, a little smaller than, the, than that of Ireland. Just then, Captain Nemo and his chief officers appeared to me. A captain glanced at the chart, then turning to me. The island of Ceylon, he said, is famous for its pearl fisheries. Would you be interested, Professor Arnox, in visiting one of those fisheries? Certainly, Captain. Fine. It's easily done. Only when we see the fisheries, we'll see no fishermen. The annual harvest has yet to be gone. Uh, no matter. I'll give the orders to make for the Gulf of Manar, and we will arrive there later tonight. Uh, isn't that fun? Captain said a few words to his chief officer, who went out immediately. Soon, the Nautilus rendered its liquid element, and the pressure gauge indicated that it was staying at a depth of 30 feet. With the chart under my eyes, I looked at the Gulf of Manar. I found that it found it by the ninth parallel off the northwestern shore of Ceylon. It was formed by the long curve of the little Manar Island. To reach it, we would have to go all the way up Ceylon's west coast. Professor, Captain Nemo told me. These are pearl fisheries in the Bay of Bengal, the seas of the East Indies, the seas of China and Japan, plus those seas south of the United States, the Gulf of Panama, and the Gulf of California. But it is off Ceylon that such fishing reaps its rich history rewards. No doubt we will be arriving a little early. Fishermen gather in the Gulf of Manar only during the month of March, and for 30 days some 300 boats concentrate on the lucrative harvest of these treasures from the sea. Each boat is manned by 10 oarsmen and 10 fishermen. The latter divided into two groups, dive in the rotation, and ascend to a depth of 12 meters with the help of a heavy stone clutched between their feet attached by a rope from their boat. You mean, I said, that such primitive methods are still all they use? All, Captain Nemo answered me. Although these fisheries belong to the most industrialized people in the world, the English, to whom the Treaty of Amnes granted them in 1802, and it strikes me that diving suits like yours could perform uh, yeoman's service with, uh, and such work. Yes, since the poor fisherman cannot stay long underwater. On his voyage to Ceylon, the Englishman Percival made much of a carafe, who stayed under five minutes without coming up to the surface. But I find that hard to believe. I know some divers can last up to 57 seconds, and highly skillful ones to 87. But such men are rare. And when the poor fellows climb back on board, the water comes in out of their nose and ears is tinted with blood. I believe the average time underwater these fishermen can tolerate is 30 seconds, during which they hastily stuff their little nets with all the pearl oysters they can tear loose. But these fishermen generally don't live to advanced age. Their vision weakens. Ulcers break out of their eyes. Sores form on their bodies. Some are even stricken with apoplexy on the ocean floor. Yes, I said. 
It's a sad occupation, one that exists only to gratify the whims of fashion. But tell me, Captain, how many oysters can a boat fish up in a workday? About 40 to 50,000. Even, uh, it's even said that in 1814, when the English government went fishing on its own behalf, its divers worked just 20 days and brought up 76 million oysters. At least, as the fishermen are well paid, aren't they? Hardly, Professor. In Panama, they just make one dollar per week. In most places, they earn only a penny for each oyster that has a pearl. And they bring up so many that have none. Only a penny for those poor people who, uh, who make their employers rich. It's atrocious. On that note, Professor, Captain Nemo told me, you and your companions will visit the man our oyster bank. If by chance some fishermen or eager fishermen arrive early, well, we can watch him work. That suits me, Captain. By the way, Professor Arnox, you aren't afraid of sharks, are you? Sharks? I exclaimed. This struck me as a pretty needless question, to say the least. Well, Captain Nemo went on. I admit, Captain, I'm not very on very familiar terms with that genus of fish. We're used to them, the rest of us, Captain Nemo said. And in time, you will be too. Anyhow, we will be armed, and on a way we might hunt a man-eater or two. It's fascinating sport. So, Professor Lanox, I'll see you tomorrow bright and early. Uh, this said in a carefree tone, Captain Nemo left the lounge. If you're invited to hunt bears in the Swiss mountains, you might say, Oh, good, I gotta go bear hunting tomorrow. And you're invited to hunt lions on the, um, on the Atlas Plains, or tigers in the jungles of India, you might say, Ha, now's my chance to hunt lions and tigers. If you're invited to hunt sharks in their native element, you might want to think it over before accepting. As for me, I passed a hand over my brow where beads of cold sweat were busy forming. Let's think this over. Oh, I hope the sharks would just kill them all. That'd be that'd be so fucking cathartic for me, because I don't really care about any of these characters. Let's think this over, I said to myself. Let's take our time. Hunting otters in underwater forests, as we did the forest of Crespo Island, is an acceptable activity. But to roam the bottom of the seas when you're almost certain to meet man-eaters in this neighborhood, that's another story. I know that certain countries, particularly those of Ad Andaman Islands, uh, people don't hesitate to attack sharks. Daggers in one hand, uh, noose in the other. But I also know that many who face those fearsome animals don't come back alive. Besides, I'm not brave, and even if I were in this instance, I don't think a little hesitation on my part would be out of place. Now, I replaced a couple of words in there, uh, with some, some other words. And if you're really curious about it, you can go look it up yourself. But there's just certain things I just flat out refuse to say. And there I was, fascinating about sharks, envisioning huge jaws armed with multiple rows of teeth and capable of cutting a man in half. I could already feel a definite pain around my pelvic girdle. Okay. And how I resented the offhand manner in which the captain extended his deplorable invitation. He replied it was an issue of going into the woods on some harmless fox hunt. Thank heavens, said to myself. Cancel will never want to come along, and that'll be my excuse for not going with the captain. As for Nedland, I admit I felt less confident of his wisdom. Danger, however great, held a perennial attraction for his aggressive nature. I went back to reading Sir's book, but I leafed it through it mechanically. Between the lines, I kept seeing fearsome, wide-open jaws. Just then, Council and the Canadian entered with a calm, even gleeful air. Little did they know what was waiting for them. You got Sir, Nedland told me. Your captain evil, the devil take him, has just made us a very pleasant proposition. Oh, I said, you know about... With all due respect, Master, Council replied, the Nautilus's commander has invited us, together with Master, to visit tomorrow of the Ceylon's magnificent polar fisheries. He did so in the most cordial terms, conducted himself a true gentleman. He d didn't tell you anything else? No, sir, Canadian replied. He said you'd already discussed this little stroll. In indeed, I said, but he didn't give you any details on? Not a one, Mr. Nat uh, Mr. Naturalist. He'll be going with us, right? Me? What? Yes, certainly, of course. I see that you like the idea, Mr. Land. Yes. It'll really be an unusual experience. And possibly dangerous, I added in an insinuating tone. Dangerous, replied Nedlund. Some will trip to an oyster bank. Surely Captain Nemo hadn't seen fit to plant the idea of sharks in the minds of my companions. For my part, I stared at them with anxious eyes, as if they were already missing a limb or two. Should I alert them? Yes, surely. But I hardly knew how to go about it. How about you just fucking alert them? Nah, I'll give that a shot. 
What master? Council said to me. Give us some background on pearl fishing. On fishing itself, I asked. Well, on the occupational hazards that... On the fishing, Captain... Uh, the Canadian replied. Well, we tackle the terrain. It helps to be familiar with it. All right, sit down, my friends, and I'll teach you everything I myself have just been taught by Englishman H.C. Sir Esquire. Ned and Council took a seat on the couch, and right off, the Canadian said to me, Sir, just what is a pearl, exactly? My gallant Ned, I replied, for poets, a pearl is a tear from the sea. For Orientals, it's Jesus. It's a drop of solidified dew. Oh, someone's called me, apparently. Why are these people... Oh, Scam Likely. Oh, my favorite. My good my good buddy, Scam Likely. Boy, you know, if I had a nickel every time they called, they would probably keep calling me and ask for, for my fucking nickel. So. Oh, and here's this for brilliance, huh? I bought a pitcher, uh, made some iced tea, and I made iced tea by uh, steeping tea in my teapot... Then I poured the tea from the teapot into the pitcher that was full of ice. And then I poured the iced tea from the pitcher back into my teapot. And now I'm drinking from it. I guess it's really that last step that's confusing, but whatever. Um, for the ladies, it's a jewel they can uh, wear on fingers. Then next is um, that oblong in shape, glassy and luster, and formed from mother of pearl. For chemists, it's a mixture of calcium phosphate and calcium carbonate with a little gelatin protein. Finally, for naturalists, it is a simple festering secretion from the organ that produces mother of pearl and certain bivalves. And Council said some dumb shit that I'm just going to skip. Correct, my scholarly Council. It's just more class order branch nonsense that nobody cares about. Um, now then, those uh, testacea capable of producing pearls include rainbow, abalone, turbo snails, giant clams, and saltwater scallops. Briefly, all of those that secrete mother of pearl, in other words, that blue, azure, violet, or white substance lining the inside of their valves. Are mussels included too? Canadian said. Yes, mussels of certain streams of Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Saxony, Bohemia, and France. Good, Canadian replied. For now, we'll pay closer attention to them. But, I wanna, for secreting pearls, the ideal mosque is the pearl oyster, Melagrina margaritifera, that valuable shellfish. Pearls result simply from mother of pearl solidifying in a globular shape. Either they stick to the oyster shell, or they become embedded in the creature's folds. On the valves, a pearl sticks fast. On the flesh, it lies loose. But its nucleus is always some small hard object, say a sterile egg or a grain of sand, around which mother pearl is deposited in thin, um, concentric layers over several years in succession. Can one find several pearls in the same oyster? Council asked. Yes, my boy. There are some shellfish that, uh, shellfish that turn in, into a real jewel's coffer. Jewel coffer. They even mention one oyster about which, uh, about which I remain dubious that supposedly contained at least 150 sharks. 150 sharks! Nedland yelled. Did I say sharks? Exclaimed hastily. Meant 150 pearls. Sharks wouldn't make sense. Indeed, Council said. But will Master now tell us how one goes about extricating these pearls? You rip open the thing and you take the pearl out. What is this? What is this chapter? This is all just a complete waste of time. But fine, hell, read it. One proceeds in several ways. No, there's not several ways. You open the animal and you take the pearl out. It's a two-step process. You pop it open, you take the pearl out. But, but fine. Often when a pearl sticks to the valves, fishmen even pull them loose with pliers. Usually the shellfish are spread out on mats made from espato grass that covers the beaches. Thus they die in the open air and by the end of 10 days they have rotted sufficiently. Next, they're immersed in huge tanks of salt water. Uh, then they're opened and washed. At this point, the sorters begin the twofold task. First, they remove the layers of mother of pearl, which are known in the industry by names of legitimate silver bastard white or bastard black. And these are shipped out in cases weighing 125 to 150 kilograms. Then they remove the oyster's meaty tissues, boil it, and finally strain it in order to extract even the smallest pearls. Do the price of the pearls differ depending on their size? The price of these pearls do differ depending on their size. Um, not only in their size, 
Right? But also, according to their shape, their water, in other words, their color, their orient, in other words, their dappled shimmering glow that makes them so delightful to the eye. The finest pearls are called virgin pearls, or paragons. They form in isolation with the mollusk's tissue. They're white, often opaque, but sometimes of opalescent transparency, and usually spherical or pear-shaped. Spherical ones are made into bracelets, the pear ones into earrings. Since they are the most valuable, they're priced individually. The other pearls that stick to the oyster shells are more radically shaped and are priced by weight. Finally, classed in the lowest order, the smallest pearls are known by the name seed pearls. They're priced by measuring cup and are used mainly in the creation of embroidery for church vestments. Must be a long, hard job sorting these pearls out by size, the Canadian said. No, my friend. The task is performed by 11 strainers or sieves that are pierced with different numbers of holes. Those pearls staying in the strainer with 20 to 80 holes are in the first order. Those not slipping through the sieves pierced with 108 to 800 holes are in the second order. Finally, those pearls uh, for which one uses strainers pierced with 900 to 1,000 holes make up the seed pearls. How ingenious, Council said. It reduces dividing and classifying pearls to mechanical operation. Could Master tell us the profits brought in by harvesting these banks of pearl oysters? According to Sir's book, I replied, these Sea Leon fisheries are farmed annually for a total profit of three million man-eaters. Francs! Council rebuked. Yes, francs. Three million francs. I went on. Um, but I don't think these fisheries bring in the returns they once did. Similarly, the Central American fisheries used to make an annual profit of four million francs during the reign of King Charles V. But now they bring in only two-thirds of that amount. On all, it's estimated nine million francs is the current yearly return for the whole pearl harvesting industry. But... Council asked, Hasn't certain famous pearls been quoted extremely high prices? Yes, my boy. I'd say Julius Caesar gave Sir Villia a pearl worth 120,000 francs in our currency. I even heard stories, Canadian said, about some lady in ancient times who drank pearls in vinegar. Cleopatra. Uh, Cleopatra, Council shot back. It must have tasted pretty bad, Nedland added. Abominable, Ned, my friend, said, uh, replied Council. But when a little glass of vinegar is worth 1.5 million francs, it tastes as, uh, its taste is a small price to pay. Sorry, I didn't marry the gal, Canadian said, throwing up a hand with an air of discouragement. Nedlin Mar married to Cleopatra? But I was all set to tie the knot, Council, Canadian replied in all seriousness. It wasn't my fault the whole business fell through. I even bought a pearl necklace from my fiancée, Kate Tender, but she married somebody else instead. Well, that necklace cost me only a dollar fifty, but you can absolutely trust me on this, Professor. Its pearls were so big, they wouldn't have gone through the strainer with twenty holes. My gallant Ned, I replied laughing. Those were artificial pearls, ordinary glass beads whose insides were coated with essence of orient. Wow, Canadian replied. The essence of Orient must sell for quite a large sum. It's a little zero. It comes from the scales of a European carp. If, uh, it's nothing more than silver substance that collects in the water and is preserved in ammonia. It's worthless. Yeah, that's why Kate Tender married somebody else, replied Mr. Mann philosophically. But, I said, getting back to the pearls of great value, I don't think any sovereign ever possessed one superior to the pearl owned by Captain Nemo. This one? This one? Council said, pointing to a magnificent jewel case. Uh, exactly. I'm, uh, I'm certainly not far off when I estimate its value at two million... Uh, francs! Cancel so quickly. Yes, said so two million francs. No doubt, um, all it cost our captain was the effort to pick it up. Ha! <laughs> then exclaimed, During our stroll tomorrow, who says we won't run into one just like it? Bah! Cancel put in. And why not? What good would a pearl worth millions do us here on the Nautilus? Here, no, Nedlin said, but elsewhere. Oh, elsewhere! Uh, Council put in, shaking his head. In fact, or, in fact, Mr. Land is right. If we were ever brought back to Europe and uh, America, Pearl worth millions would make the story of our adventures more authentic and much more rewarding. But that's how I that's how I see it, Canadian said. But Council said, who perpetually uh, returned to the didactic side of things, is this pearl fishing um, ever dangerous? No, I replied quickly. Especially if one takes certain precautions. What risks would you run in a job like that? Nolan said, swallowing up a few gulps of salt water. What do you whatever you say, Ned? Then trying to imitate Captain Nemo's carefree tone, asked, "By the way, Captain Ned." 
on Gallinet. Are you afraid of sharks? Me, can reply. Professional harpooner. It's my job to make mockery of them. It isn't in it. It is an issue. I said, a fishing for them with a swivel hook, hoisting them onto the deck of the ship and chopping off their tail with a swoop of an axe, opening the belly and ripping out the heart and tossing it out to the sea. So it's an issue of. Yes, precisely. In the water. In the water. He gods, give me a good harpoon. You'll see, sir. These sharks are badly designed. They have to roll their bellies over to snap at you. In the meantime, Nedlin had a way of pronouncing the word "snap" that sent the chills down my spine. How about you, Council? What are your feelings on these man-eaters? Me? Council said. I'm afraid I must be frank with Master. Good for you, I thought. If Master faces these sharks, Council said, I think his loyal manservant should face them with him. Ha <laughs> Time to go face sharks, you dumbass. So every now and then, I get my hands on a new comic to enjoy. It doesn't happen very often. It's usually just Adventure Zone, or in this case... Critical Role, who just dropped their latest uh, paperback trade, uh, trade paperback of their comic series pre-stream, uh, the the origins of Vox Machina, um, which has been really good. Um, I read the first uh, volume many many moons ago, and the second volume came out this past week. I uh, ended up picking it up off of Amazon because it was three dollars cheaper, and you know, gotta save my pennies now that I'm out on my own. Um, it was pretty good. I just finished reading it. it. Took about took a solid hour, I would say. Um, the art is phenomenal. It introduces Pike and Percy to the party, and it also takes care of Tiberius, at least for the for right now. Um, to the best of my knowledge, Tiberius shows up um for a little bit coming up here pretty soon, uh, and then goes away, and then goes away forever. Um, because fuck Tiberius <laughs> and. Uh, I I think it's I think it's really good. Um, it's it's funny if if it wasn't directly related to Critical Role A, I don't think I'd be picking it up, and B I don't think I'd recommend it. If you're not a really big Critical Role fan, um, there's there's not much here for you. I mean it's it's interesting and it looks good, uh, but it, in and of itself it is not the best comic I've ever read. Like, the adventures on graphic novels can absolutely be enjoyed without having listened to the podcast. But I don't think you're going to get as much enjoyment out of the Critical Role comic books if you're not a fan and if you're not familiar with where the story goes. Because as it sits right now, to me, the, the, the comic kind of relies on that, um, that knowledge of the characters that you get from watching the stream and... The knowledge of the actors and all that stuff and like their their relationship to one another because the characterization within the comic book in and of itself is not the greatest it's okay like you get an idea of what they're about just by reading the comic book but not enough of an idea and it, it could have been better and there's a lot of things where I'm reading it and I go oh this is that moment when this happens uh, and I know about it because they talked about it in the show but it's not stated in the book so it's just kind of like, oh, you know, that's just a, a thing. Um, and they just gloss over it. And it makes it, uh, it's not it's not great because it almost feels supplemental, not a standalone uh, piece of media. Like, I hope when the, when the show comes out um, sometime next year that uh, the fucking show stands alone, you know? I don't want to have to watch the show and be like, oh, well, they skipped over this because it was in the, in the you know, the live stream. Uh, so they didn't feel the need to talk about it. You know, I want I want them to 
to make it a standalone thing. And I'm not sure the comic is that. I think the comic is just like a fun bonus prequel that you really need to have the knowledge of what occurs afterwards in order to really appreciate it. At least that's my perspective. I'm sure somebody else could read it and go, oh, that's fine. But I feel like there's a lot more to be gained from the comic book if you're already a big fan of it. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I'm very, I'm very excited to look forward to the next one, which is probably going to be like next year at some point. Um, would be my guess because that's usually how these things go. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Chapter 27. Yeah, you said with incredible months of confidence. Yeah, chapter 27. Poe worth 10 million. Well, gee, I wonder what happens in this fucking chapter. Stupid title. Night fell. Cool. I went to bed. Neat. I slept pretty poorly. All right. Man-eaters played a major role in my dreams. Wouldn't they be nightmares at that point? And I found it more or less appropriate that the French word for shark, requiem, had its linguistic roots in the word requiem. The next day at 4 o'clock in the morning, I was awakened by the steward whom Captain Nemo had placed expressly at my service. I got up quickly, dressed, and went into the lounge. Captain Nemo was waiting for me. Professor Arnox, he said to me. Are you ready to start? I'm ready. Kindly follow me. What about my companions, Captain? They've been alerted and are waiting for us. Aren't we going to put on our diving suits, I asked? Not yet. I haven't let the Nautilus pull too near the coast. We're fairly out, well out from the Manor Oyster Bank. But I have the skiff ready, and it will take us to the exact spot where we will disembark, which will save us a pretty long trek. It's carrying our diving equipment, so we'll just suit up before we go exploring our underwater. Sure, that works. Captain Nemo took me to the central companionway, whose steps led to the platform. Then in council, we're there, enraptured with the pleasure trip getting underway. Orders in position five of the Nautilus's sailors were waiting for us aboard the skiff, which was moored alongside. Night was still dark, layers of cloud cloaked the sky, left only a few stars in my view. My eyes flew to the side where the land lay, and I only saw a blurred line covering three quarters of the horizon, from southwest to northwest. Going up Ceylon's west coast during the night, Nautilus way lay west of the bank. The bay. I'm not drunk, I swear. Or rather, that gulf formed by the mainland of Manar Island. Under these dark waters that stretched the bank of shellfish, an inexhaustible field of pearls more than 20 miles long. Captain Nemo, Council, Nedland, and I found seats in the stern of the skiff. So, I was thinking about this last chapter. In Epcot, um, at the Japanese pavilion, there is a uh, tank at the very back of like the giant Japanese department store shop thing. Uh, where you can buy oyster pearls. And they will, or yeah, yeah, oysters uh, that might have a pearl in it. And it, you know, you, you pick your oyster out and they crack it open in front of you and they harvest the oyster and they give it to you in like a little box and all this stuff. And it's like a $50 thing. Um, but I want to know, like, how do they know those oysters have pearls in them? What if it's a, just a tank full of just pearless oysters? You know, how do you know? That's what I want to know. And that whole ap- chapter, last, last chapter, where they're talking about all this shit about pearl farming. I want to know, like... How do you know when an oyster has a pearl in it without killing the damn oyster, you know? Like, how can they claim that you you pick an oyster and it's going to have pearl in it at this box? Isn't that just a total natural crapshoot? Can you preload an oyster? I don't know. I do not know. Uh, the coxswain's longboat, or the longboat's coxswain took the tellers for companions, leaned into their oars, and the moorings were cast off, and we pulled clear. The skiff headed southward. The oarsmen took their times. I watched their strokes vigorously catch the water, and they always waited ten seconds before rowing again, following the practice used in most innate, um, navies. While the longboat coasted, drops of liquid uh, flicked from the oars and hit the dark trough of the waves, pitter-pattering like splashes of molten lead. 
Coming from well out, a mild swell made the skiff roll gently, and a few cresting billows lapped out its bow. We were silent. What was Captain Nemo thinking? Perhaps that this approaching shore was too close for comfort, contrary to the Canadian's views, in which it still seemed too far away. As for Count Sell, he had come along out of simple curiosity. Near 5.30, the first glimmers of lights on the horizon defied the upper lines of the coast with great distinctness. Fairly flat to the east, it swelled a little to the south. Five miles still separated us, and its beach merged from with misty waters. Between us and the shore, the sea was deserted. Not a boat, not a diver. Profound solitude reigned over this place of pearl fishermen. As Captain Nimai commented, we were arriving in these waterways a month too soon. At 6 o'clock, the day broke suddenly with the speed unique to tropical regions, which experienced no real dawn or dusk. Sun's rays pierced the cloud curtain gathered on the eastern horizons, and the radiant orb rose swiftly. I could clearly see the shore, which featured sparse trees here and there. The skiff advanced towards Mananar, Manar Island, which curved to the south. Captain Nemo stood up from his thwart and studied the sea. At his signal, the anchor was lowered, but its chain barely ran because the bottom lay no more than a meter down, and this locality was one of the shallowest spots near the bank of the shellfish. Instantly, the skiff wheeled around under the ebb tide's outbound thrust. Here we are, Professor Arnox, Captain Nemo said. You observe this confined bay. A month from now, in this very place, numerous fishing boats of the harvesters will gather, and the, um, these are the waters their divers will ransack so daringly. This bay is fastidiously laid out for their type of fishing. It's sheltered from their strongest winds, and the sea is never very turbulent here. Highly favorable conditions for diving work. Now let us put on our underwater suits, and we'll begin our stroll. I didn't reply. While staring at these suspicious waves, I began to put on my heavy aquatic clothes, helped by the longboat sailors. Captain Nemo and my two companions suited up as well. None of the Nautilus's men were going to go with us on this new excursion. Soon we were imprisoned up to the neck in India rubber clothing and straps fastened uh, the air devices onto our backs. As for the lighting device, it didn't seem to be in the picture. Before inserting my head in the copper capsule, I commented on this to the captain. Our lighting equipment would be useless to us, Captain answered me. We won't be going very deep and the sun's rays will be sufficient to light our way. Besides, it's unwise to carry electric lanterns under these waves. Their brightness might unexpectedly attract certain dangerous occupants of these waterways. When are you guys going to fight the giant fucking squid? Anyway, as Captain Nemo pronounced these words, I turned to Count Zyla Nedland, uh, but my two friends had already encased their craniums in the metal headgear, and they could neither hear nor reply. Only had one question left to address to the captain. What about our weapons? I asked him. Our rifles. Rifles? What for? Don't you mountaineers attack Peros dagger in hand. It isn't steel surer than lead. Here's a sturdy blade. Slip it under your belt and let us be off. I stared at my companions. They were armed in the same fashion. Nedlin was also brandishing an enormous harpoon he had stowed in the skiff before leaving the Nautilus. Smart. Then following the captain's example, I let myself be crowned with my heavy copper sphere and our ed tanks immediately went into action. An instant later, the longboat sailors helped us overboard one after the other and we set on uh, we set foot on level sand in a meter and a half of water. Captain Nemo gave us a hand signal. We followed him down a gentle slip and disappeared under the waves. Beneath the waves, we were invincible. Just like, um, uh, in fucking Brissinger, whenever they said, um, Waking Dreams, uh, Beneath the Waves is another Arion song, and it's pretty good. I actually went out to fucking Costco today, and somebody recognized my Arion shirt and told me how excited they were for the new album, and I was just like, fuck yeah, dude! Transitus! Can't wait. Can't wait. So, that's never happened to me before, people recognizing the Arion shirt. It takes a rare individual out in the wild to be like, yo! Arion, that's what's up. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Fuck yeah. Air 5, because it's COVID. Anyway. There, the obsessive fears in my brain left me. I became surprisingly calm again. The ease with which I could move uh, increased my confidence, and the many strange sights captivated my imagination. Sun was already sending sufficient lights under these waves. The tiniest objects remained visible. After 10 minutes walking, we were in 5 meters of water, and the terrain had almost become flat. 
like a cove of snipe over a marsh. Sure. There rose underfoot schools of unusual fish from the genius who gives a shit, whose members have no fins but tails. Recognize the Javanese eel, a genuine eight decimeter serpent with a bluish gray belly, with uh, which, without the gold lines over its flanks, could easily be confused with a conger eel. From the butterfish genius, whose oval body was very flat, I observed several adorned um, in brilliant colors and sporting a dorsal fin like a sickle. That edible fish that, when dried and marinated, made an excellent dish known as the carawade. Some uh, sea poachers, fish belonging to the genius who gives a crap, whose bodies are covered with scaly armor divided into eight lengths, uh, lengthwise sections. I actually saw, when I was at Costco, same story, same day. Apparently, you can buy bags of dried sea cucumbers. That's a thing now that people can buy. And they are... Well, A, they're expensive as fuck. A bag of sea cucumbers was like $50. And I was just like, I have never seen that before. Um, I'm going to Google it, actually, right here. Dried sea cucumber. So Costco just has these things now. But, like, what's the what's the point? Benefits of eating sea cucumber. What do you got? Because they should be... Yeah, they have a slippery texture and bland taste. Usually infused with flavors from other ingredients. Like, it's... It shouldn't have a whole lot going on there. Due to high demand... High demand? Who the fuck? Incredibly nutritious, you say. Okay. Uh, apparently, it's rich in riboflavin. So, that's fun. Um, it's, it's rich in B2. Uh, apparently, what is it? Four ounces of sea cucumber will deliver 81% of your daily thing of riboflavin. It's also really rich in protein. 14 grams of protein in, in four ounces of sea cucumber. Okay. Very low in calories and fat and high in protein, making them a weight loss friendly food. They also contain powerful substances, including antioxidants, which are good for your health. Sea cucumbers are high in protein, uh, which most species comprising 41 to 63% protein. That's pretty efficient protein. Adding protein sources to meals and snacks helps uh, keep you full by slowing the emptying of your stomach. Um, and it's also just got an absolute shit ton of riboflavin. It's a very expensive form of protein, though. The most efficient form of protein um, that I believe science has actually discovered is whey protein from, like, cheese runoffs, which is what's used as protein powder in most cases. Whey protein is, like, 100% protein. And it has, like, zero, um, like, fat and stuff like that. That is the most efficient form of protein. So if you're really interested in, like, getting protein in your body and not necessarily losing weight, but, you know building muscle, whey protein is the way to go. And so, you know, you gotta be smart about it. Uh, anyway, where was I? So yeah, I just, uh, sea cucumber. I guess if you were making like a seafood stock, it would have some kind of like a natural brininess to it, but I can't think of any uses beyond that because I'm definitely not gonna just fucking make a sea cucumber and nibble on a dried one, so. Meanwhile, as the sun got progressively higher, it lit up the watery mass more and more. The seafloor changed little by little. Its fine grain sand was followed by a genuine causeway of smooth cracks covered by a carpet of mollusks and zoophytes. Among other species of these two branches, I noted some windowpane oysters with thin valves of unequal sizes, a type of ostracod unique to the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, and then orange-hued lucenia with circular shells, all shaped auger shells, some of those Persian murex snails, that supply the Nautilus with such wonderful dye. Spiky periwinkles, 15 centimeters long, that rose under the waves like hands ready to grab you. Turban snails with shells made of horn and bristling all over the spines. Lamb shells, edible duck clams that feed the Hindu marketplace. 
subtly luminous jellyfish of the species who cares and finally some wonderful whatever the fuck's magnificent sea fans that fashion one of the most luxuriant tree forms in this ocean i'm skipping all the scientific words i have no i no longer care in the midst of this moving vegetation under arbors of water plants there raised legions of clumsy articulates in particular some fanged frog crabs whose carapaces form slightly rounded triangles robber crabs exclusive to these water webs and horrible penth Partheniope crabs whose parents are were repulsive repulsive to the eye really really you say it's repulsive to the eye you say well it looks like i'm looking up this crab let's just uh open a new browser here so i don't play in my movie p-a-r-t-h-e-n-o-p-e -E. crab oh okay it's those things yeah those are um large i wouldn't say it's repulsive to the eye it's just not really great to look at. It's just re really weirdly spiky with giant long arms. Um, it's fine. I've seen far more terrifying sea creatures than uh, than those things. Um, personally, so. Whose appearance is repulsive to the eye. It looks fine. It just looks craggy. Um, one animal no less hideous, which I encountered several times, was the enormous crab that Mr. Darwin observed, to which nature had given the instinct and requisite strength to eat coconuts, it scrambles up the trees on the beach, sends the coconuts tumblings, they fracture as they fall, and are opened by its powerful pincers. Yeah, the coconut crab, that's a, yeah, it's the same, same crab. Here, under these clear waves, this crab raced around with matchless agility, while green turtles from the species frequently the Malabar coast moved sluggishly among the crumbling rocks. Near 7 o'clock, we finally surveyed the bank of shellfish where pearl oysters were produced by the millions. These valuable mollusks stick to rocks where they are strongly attached by a, brown, uh, a mass of brown filaments that forbid their moving about. In this respect, oysters are inferior to even mussels, to whom nature has not denied all talent for locomotion. The shellfish, whatever, the womb of that womb for pearls, whose valves are nearly equal in size, has the shape of a round shell with thick walls and a very rough exterior. Some of these shells were furred with flaky greenish bands that radiated down from the top. The, these were the young oysters. The others had a ruggish black surfaces measuring up to 15 centimeters in width and were 10 or more years old. Captain Newman pointed to this prodigious help of shellfish, and I saw that these mines were genuinely inexhaustible, since nature's creative powers are greater than man's destructive instincts. Eh, not, nope, not really. I treated those instincts. Nedlin greedily stuffed the, fur, the finest of these mollusks into a net he carried at his side, but we couldn't stop. We had to follow the captain, who headed down the trail seemingly knowing only, unknown only to himself. The seafloor rose noticeably, and when I lifted my arms, sometimes they would pass above the surface of the sea, and then the level of the oyster bank would lower unpredictably. Often we went around tall pointed rocks rising like pyramids, and their dark crevices, huge crustaceans, aiming their long legs like heavy artillery, watched us with unblinking eyes. While underfoot there crept millipedes, bloodworms, arcasia worms, annelid worms, whose antennas and turbular tentacles were incredibly long. Just then a huge cave opened up in our path, um, hollowed from a picturesque pile of rocks, whose smooth heights were completely hung from underwater floor. At first, uh, this cave looked pitch black to me. Inside, the sun's rays seemed to diminish by, the, uh, by degrees. Their hazy transparency was nothing more than drowned light. Captain Nemo went in. We followed him. My eyes soon grew accustomed to this comparative gloom. I distinguished the unpredictable contours springing from the vault, supported by the natural pillars firmly based on a grounded foundation like the weighty columns of the Tuscan architecture. Why had our incomprehensible guide taken us into the depths of this underwater crypt? I would soon find out. After going down a fairly steep slope, a few trod on the floor of a circular pit. There, Captain Nemo stopped, and his hand indicated an object that I hadn't yet noticed. It was an oyster of extraordinary dimensions, a gigantic... A titanic giant clam, a holy water font um, that could have held a whole lake, the basin more than two meters wide, hence even bigger than one adorning the Nautilus's lunch. I approached this phenomenal mollusk, its massive filaments attached it to the table of granite, 
and there it grew by itself in the midst of this cave's calm waters. Animus did the weight of this giant clam at 300 kilograms. Hence, such an oyster held 15 kilos of meat, and you need the stomach of King Gargantua to eat a couple dozen. Captain Nemo was obviously familiar with this bivalve's existence. This wasn't the first time he paid it a visit, and I thought its sole reason for leading us to this locality was to show us a natural curiosity. I was mistaken. Captain Nemo had an explicit personal interest in checking on the current condition of this giant clam. The mollusk's two valves were partially open. The captain approached and stuck his dagger vertically between the shells to discourage any ideas about clothing. And then his hands, he raised the fringed, membrane-filled tunic that made up the animal's mantle. Then, between its leaf-like folds, I saw a loose pearl as big as a coconut. Its globular shape, perfect clarity, and wonderful orient made it a jewel of incalculable value. Carried away by curiosity, I stretched my hand out to take it, weigh it, funnel it, but the captain stopped me, signal no, removing the dagger in one swift motion, let the two valves snap shut. Then I understood Captain Nemo's intent. By leaving the pearl bird beneath the giant mollusk's mantle, he allowed it to grow imperceptibly. With each passing year, the mollusk's secretions added a new concentric layer. The captain alone was familiar with the cave, where this wonderful fruit of nature was ripening. He alone reared it, so to speak, in order to transfer it one day to his dearly beloved museum. Perhaps following the examples of oyster farmers in China and India, he had even predetermined the creation of this pearl by sticking under the mollusk's folds some piece of glass or metal that was gradually covered with mother of pearl. In any case, ah, uh, maybe that's how they do it. That might be how they do it. In any case, compare this pearl to others I already knew about, um, and to those shimmering in the captain's collection, estimated that pearl to be worth at least 10 million francs. With a superb natural curiosity, rather than a luxury piece of jewelry, because I don't know any female ear that could handle it. Our visit to this opulent giant clam came to an end. Captain Nemo left the cave, and we climbed back to the bank of the shellfish in the midst of these clear waters, not yet disturbed by divers at work. We walked for by ourselves, genuine loiterers stopping and straying as our fancy dictate. For my part, I was no longer worried about those dangers my imagination had ridiculously exaggerated. Shallows drew no, uh, noticeably closer to the surface of the sea, and soon walking only in a meter of water, my head passed well above the level of the ocean. Council rejoined me, gluing his huge copper capsule to mind. His eyes gave me a friendly greeting. But this lofty plateau measured only a few fathoms, and soon we uh, re-entered our element. I think I've now earned the right to dub it that. Ten minutes later, Captain Nemo stopped suddenly. Thought he called a halt uh, so that we could turn and start back. No, with a gesture, he ordered us to crouch beside him at a foot of a wide crevice. His hand motioned towards the spot within the liquid mask. I looked carefully. Five meters away, a shadow appeared and then dropped to the seafloor. The alarm idea of sharks crossed my mind, but I was mistaken. Once again, we didn't have to deal with the monsters of the deep. It was a man. A living man. An Indian fisherman. The poor devil who no doubt had come to gather what he could before harvest time. Saw the bottom of his dinghy moored a few feet above his head. He would dive and go back up in quick succession. The stone cut in the shape of a sugar loaf which he gripped between his feet while a rope connected to his boat served to lower him more quickly to the ocean floor. This was the extent of his equipment. Arriving on the seafloor at a depth of about five meters, he fell to his knees and stuffed a sack with shellfish gathered around him. Then he went back, emptied his sack, pulled up his stone, and started all over again. The whole process lasting only 30 seconds. The diver didn't see us. Shadow cast by our crag hit us from view. Besides, how could this poor man... I have ever guessed that human beings, creatures like himself, were near him under the water, eavesdropping on his movements, not a single detail of his fishing. Not missing a single detail of his fishing. So he went up and down several times. He gathered about ten uh, shellfish per dive, uh, because he had to tear them up from the banks where they clung to the tough mass of filaments. How many oysters for which he would risk his life he had uh, that had no pearl in him. I observed him with great care. His movements were systematically executed for about half an hour, no danger seemed to threaten him. So I had gotten used to the sight of this fascinating fishing when all at once, just as the Indian was kneeling on the sea floor, I saw him make a frightened gesture, stand, gather himself to spring back to the surface of the waves. I understood his fear. A gigantic shadow appeared above the poor diver. It was a shark of huge size, moving diagonally, jaws, eyes ablaze, jaws wide open. I was speechless with horror, unable to make a single movement. 
With one vigorous stroke of its fins, the voracious animal shot towards the man, who jumped aside and avoided the shark's bite, uh, not by thrashing, but not the thrashing of its tail, because that tail struck him across the chest and stretched him out over the seafloor. Seen past it lasted barely a second. The shark returned, rolled over on its back, and was getting ready to cut the end in half when Captain Nemo, who was stationed beside me, suddenly stood up. They strode right towards the monster, dagger in hand, and was ready to fight it at close quarters. Just as it was about to snap up the poor fisherman, Manier saw its new adversary repositioned itself on its belly and headed swiftly towards him. This is not how sharks work. I see Captain Nemo's bearing to this day, praising himself. He waited for the fearsome man-eater uh, with wonderful composure. When the latter rushed in, the captain leapt aside with prodigious quickness, uh, avoided the collision, and sank its dagger into the belly. That was the end of the story. A dreadful battle was joined. The shark bellowed, so to speak. Blood was pouring into the waves from its wounds. The sea was dyed red, and through this opaque liquid, I could see nothing. Nothing else until the moment when a rift through the clouds I saw the daring captain clinging to one of the animal's fins, fighting the monster at close quarters, belaboring his enemy's belly with stabs of the dagger yet unable to deliver the deciding thrust, in other words, a direct hit to the heart. It struggles, the man-eater churned the watery mass so furiously its eddies threatened to knock me over. I wanted to run to the captain's rescue, but I was transfixed with horror, unable to move. Stared wide-eyed, I saw the fight enter a new phase. The captain fell to the seafloor, toppled by the enormous mass weighing down upon him. Then the shark's jaws opened astoundingly wide like a pair of industrial shears. That would have been the finish for Captain Nemo had not Nedland, quick as the thought, rushed forward with his harpoon and driven the dreadful point into the shark's underside. The waves were saturated with masses of blood. The water shook uh, with movements from the man-eater, which thrashed around with indescribable fury. Nedland hadn't missed his target. He, this was the monster's death rattle, pierced to the heart. It was struggling with dreadful spasms, whose aftershocks knocked Cancel off his feet. Meanwhile, Nedland pulled the captain clear. Uninjured, the latter stood up, went rigid uh, right to the Indian, who quickly cut the rope binding the man to a stone took the fellow uh, in his arms, and with a vigorous kick of his heel, rose to the surface of the sea. The three of us followed him, and a few months later, miraculously safe, we reached the fisherman's longboat. Captain Nemo's first concern was to revive this unfortunate man. I wasn't sure he would succeed. I hoped so, since the poor devil hadn't been under very long. But that stroke from the shark's tail could have been his death blow. Fortunately, after vigorous massaging for my counsel and the captain, I saw the nearly drowned man regain consciousness little by little. He opened his eyes. I startled he must have felt how frightened even to that seeing four huge copper craniums leaning over him. Then, above all, what he must have thought when Captain Nemo pulled a bag of pearls from his pocket in his diving suit and placed it in the fisherman's hands. This magnificent benefaction from the man of the waters to the poor Indian from Ceylon was accepted by the latter with trembling hands. His bewildered eyes indicated they did not know what superhuman creatures he owed both his life and his fortune. At the captain's signal, we returned to the bank of shellfish, and retracing our steps, we walked for half an hour until we encountered the anchors, the anchor connecting the seafloor to the Nautilus's skiff. Back on board, the sailors helped us divest of our heavy copper carapaces. Captain Nemo's first words were spoken to the Canadian. Thank you, Mr. Land, he told him. Tip for tat, Captain, I replied. I owed it to you. The ghost of a smile across the captain's lips, and that was all. To the Nautilus, he said. The longboat flew over the waves. A few minutes later, we entered the shark's, uh, we encountered the shark's corpse again floating. From the black markings on the tips of its fang, I recognized the dreadful, uh, whatever the fuck, whatever the fuck, from the seas of the East Indies, a variety of the species of shark proper. It was more than 25 feet long. That is technically possible for certain shark species but that's a big fucking shark gray whites uh rarely grow that large and you know whatever it's enormous mouth occupied a third of its body that's also not strictly fine whatever it was an adult as could be seen from the six rows of teeth forming an isosceles triangle in its upper jaw council looked at it with pure scientific fascination i was sure he had placed it not without good reason in the class etc when I was contemplating this inert match, suddenly a dozen of these uh, voracious melanoptera appeared around our longboat, but paying no attention to us, they pounced on the corpse and quarreled over every scrap of it. By 8.30, we were back on board the Nautilus. Then I fell to thinking about the incidents that marked our excursion um, over the Manar Oysterbank. Two impressively, inevitably stood out. 
One concerned Captain Nemo's matchless bravery, and the other his devotion to a human being, a representative of that race from which he had fled beneath the seas. In spite of everything, the strange man hadn't yet succeeded in completely stifling the start. When I shared these impressions with him, he answered me in a tone touched with emotion. That Indian professor lives in the land of the oppressed, and I am to this day, and will until my last breath, a native of that same land. Oh, interesting, Captain Nemo. Well, that's fucking fascinating. Mostly to test my own limits and out of my own insane curiosity, um, I finished Brissinger uh, this past week on a single day, basically. I had 22 chapters left to read. It took me five and a half hours, but I was able to powerhouse my way through over the course of the day from like 11.30 to like 7.47 or something like that at night throughout the day. Um, I read chapters and it was a I'm happy to know I can do that and still talk the next day this is now as of recording this segment the next day um, and I, I was just after a while it just became about finishing you know like I I, I set forth with the challenge to complete the book that day um, I miscounted how many chapters there were in the book, so I didn't actually know how long it was going to take me. Um, I knew it was roughly like 210 pages is what I read in a single day, right about. Um, and it's nice to kind of know that it's like, if I absolutely need to, I can I can crank it out. I didn't need to. That's the thing. Um, there was no rush on, on finishing Brissinger, except for me, because, um, and, I'll, I'll, and you'll hear this in the actual audiobook, I, I remember the, the contents of Brissinger fairly well, and that's why I was eager to complete its its reading um, timely, because Inheritance is the one that I have the least amount of knowledge about, uh, which is ironic because Inheritance is also the only book I own um, where I have the official audiobook for, um, for some reason. It's, it's like... I have a bunch of other audiobooks from, you know, my grandmother and my own, but it's the only one I have that's, like, on physical discs is uh, is Inheritance. Couldn't tell you why, but it is. So that's, that is what it is. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to rereading that book for the, for honest to God, the second time in my life. I know I read it once when it first came out, and I've never picked it up again. Um, so it'll basically be like reading it for the first time, because Inheritance came out fucking many years ago. And I don't remember anything in that book except for, like, crucial plot details, like the good guys win in the end and stuff like that. Um, so I'm very excited to, to get into there. Uh, but the marathon reading session, it was it was interesting. Um, didn't lose my voice. Uh, I got really sick of, like, holding the book, you know? Like, my arms started to get tired after a while of, like, five and a half hours of just holding a book up. It was, uh, it was rough. But it's done. But it's done, so that's that's very that's very fun and exciting, and um, I'm looking forward to getting started with Inheritance here pretty soon, so we can uh, crank that out and then hopefully move on to uh, to something uh, something pretty fun coming down the pipeline here in a little bit that I also should start uh, start reading with some earnest, so that can be done and ready by the time it comes around. Yes, let's move on to the next thing, the podcast. times like these, 
when I really reflect and realize just how glamorous my life is as I'm reading chapter 20. Eight. The Red Sea! Chapter 28. The Red Sea. During the day of January 29th, the island of Ceylon disappeared below the horizon at a speed of 20 miles per hour. The Nautilus glided into the labyrinthian channels that separated the Maldives and the Lacadives Islands. It likewise hugged Kilton Island, a shore of madreporic origin, discovered by Vasco da Gama in 1499 and one of 19 chief islands in this island group of the Lacadives. Lacadives? Located between... Latitude 10 degrees, 14 degrees, 30 feet north, between longitude 50 degrees, 72 feet, and 69 degrees east. By then, we had fared 16,220 miles, or 7,500 leagues from our starting point in the Sea of Japan, which means we have many, many more leagues to go. The next day, January 30th, when the Nautilus rose on the surface of the ocean, it was no more. there was no more land in sight. Uh, setting its course to the north-northwest, the ship headed toward the Gulf of Oman, curved out between Arabia and the Indian Peninsula, and providing access to the Persian Gulf. This was obviously a blind alley with no possible outlet, so where was Captain Nemo taking us? I was unable to say, which didn't satisfy the Canadian, who the day asked me where we were going. Uh, we're going, Mr. Ned, to where the Captain Fancies takes us. His fancy, the Canadian replied, won't take us very far. The Persian Gulf has no outlet. If we enter those waters, it won't be long before we return on our tracks. All right, we'll return, Mr. Land. After the Persian Gulf, the Nautilus wants to visit the Red Sea. The Strait of Bab el Mandeb uh, is still there to let us in. I have to tell you, sir, Nedlin replied, that the Red Sea is just as landlocked as the Gulf, since the Isthmus of Suez hasn't been cut all the way through yet. And even if it was, a boat as secret of his ours wouldn't rescue a canal intersected with locks. So the Red Sea won't be back, won't be our way back to Europe either. I didn't say we'd return to Europe. What do you figure then? I figured after visiting these unusual waterways of Arabia and Egypt, the Nautilus would go back down to the Indian Ocean, perhaps through the Mozambique Channel, perhaps off to the Mascarene Islands, and then make for Cape of Good Hope. And once we're at Cape of Good Hope, the Canadian asked with a typical persistence, well then, we'll enter the Atlantic Ocean, uh, with which we aren't, yet un uh, we aren't yet familiar. What's wrong then, my friend? Are you tired of this voyage under the seas? Are you bored with the constant changing sights of the underwater wonders? Speaking for myself, I'll be extremely distressed to see the end of the voyage so few men will ever have a chance to make. But don't you realize, Professor Arnex, Canadian replied, that we'll soon have, um, we'll have been in prison for three whole months aboard this Nautilus? No, Ned, I didn't realize. I don't want to realize it. I don't keep track of every day and every hour. But when will it be over? In its appointed time. Meanwhile, there's nothing we can do about it, and our discussions are futile. My gallant Ned, if you come and tell me a chance to escape is available to us, then I'll discuss it with you. But that isn't the case, and in all honesty, I don't think Captain Nemo ever ventures into European seas. Based on your three months of living on the boat, that seems a well-informed... Scientific discovery you've made there, Captain Narnox. Narnox. There you go. This short dialogue reveals that in my mania for the Nautilus, I was turning into the spitting image of its commander. As for Nedland, he ended our talk uh, in his best speechifying style. That's all fine and dandy, but my home opinion, a life in jail is a life without joy. For four days until February 3rd, the Nautilus inspected the Gulf of Oman at various speeds and depths. It seemed to be traveling at random, as if hesitating over which course to follow, but it never crossed the Tropic of Cancer. After leaving the Gulf, we raised Muscat for an instant, the most important town in the country of Oman. I just marveled at its uh, strange appearance in the midst of the black rocks surrounding it, against which the white of its houses and forts stood out sharply. I spotted the rounded domes of the mosques, the elegant tips of its minarets, and its fresh, leafy terraces. But it was only a fleeting vision, and the Nautilus soon sank beneath the dark uh, waves of these waterways. Then our ship went along at a distance of six miles from the Arabic, um, Arabic coast of Mahar, 
Mahra, there we go, and Hadramat, uh, their undulating lines of mountains revealed by some, by a few ancient runes. On February 5th, we finally pulled into the Gulf of Aden, a genuine funnel stuck in the neck of Bab el-Mandeb and bottling these Indian waters in the Red Sea. On February 6th, Nautilus cruised inside of the city of Aden, perched on its promontory, connected to the continent by narrow isthmus, a sort of inaccessible Gibraltar, whose fortifications the English rebuilt after capturing it in 1839. I glimpsed the octagonal minarets of the town, which uh, used to be one of the wealthiest, busiest commercial centers along this coast, as the Arab historian Idrissus tells it. I was convinced that when Captain Nemo reached this point, he would go back out, but I was mistaken. Much to my surprise, he did nothing of the sort. On the next day, February 7th, we entered the Strait of Bab el-Mandeb, whose name means Gates of Tears in the Arabic language. 20 miles wide, it's only 52 kilometers long, and when the Nautilus launched at full speed, uh, clearing it was the work of barely an hour. I didn't see a thing. Not even Perham Island, where the British government built fortifications to strengthen Aden's positions. There were many English and French steamers plowing this narrow passageway, liners going from Suez to Bombay, Calcutta, Melbourne, Rayon Island, and Meridus. Far too much traffic for the Nautilus to make an appearance on the surface, so it wisely stayed in midwater. Finally, around noon, we were plowing the waves of the Red Sea. The Red Sea, that great lake so famous in biblical traditions, seldom replenished by rains, fed by no important rivers, continually drained by a high rate of evaporation, its waters levels dropping a meter and a half every year. If it were fully landlocked like a lake, this odd gulf might dry up completely. On this, on this score, it's inferior to its neighbors, the Caspian Sea and the Dead Sea, whose levels lower only to a point where their evaporation is equal to the amounts of waters they take to their hearts. The Red Sea is 2,600 kilometers long, with an average width of 240 kilometers. In the days of Ptolemies um, and the Roman emperors, um, the great commercial artery for the world where the Isthmus had been cut through, it was completely regained. Uh, it will completely regain that bygone importance that the Suez Railway had already brought back in part. I would not even attempt to understand the whim that induced Captain Nemo to take us into this gulf. I wholeheartedly approved of the Nautilus's entering it. It adopted a medium pace, sometimes staying on the surface, sometimes diving to avoid some ships, and so I could observe both the inside and the top side of this highly unusual sea. On February 8th, as, at the, as early as the first hours of daylight, Mocha appeared before us, a town now in ruins whose walls could collapse at the mere sound of a cannon with uh, which shelters a few leafy date trees here and there. This once important city used to contain six public marketplaces plus 26 mosques, and its walls protected by 14 forts fashioned a three-kilometer girdle around it. Then the Nautilus drew near the beaches of Africa, where the seas are considerably deeper. There, through the open panels and the, in a midwater of crystal clarity, our ship enabled us to study wonderful bushes of shining coral and huge chunks of rock wrapped in splendid green furs of algae and fuckus. Uh, what an indescribable sight. And what a variety of settings and scenery where these reefs and volcanic islands leveled off the Libyan coast. But soon the Nautilus hugged the eastern shore where the tree forms appeared in all their glory. This was off the coast of Tihama, and there such zoophyte displays not only flourished below sea level, but they also fashioned picturesque networks that unreeled the high at ten fathoms above it. The latter were more whimsical but less colorful than the former, which kept their bloom thanks to the moist vitality of the waters. How many delightful hours I spent in this way at the lounge window. How many new specimens of underwater flora and fauna I marveled at beneath the light of our electric beacon. Mushroom-shaped fungus coral, some slate-colored sea anemone, including the species who cares, among others, Oregon pipe coral arranged like flutes, just begging for a puff from the god pan. Shells unique to the sea that dwell in madreporic cavities whose bases are twisted in squat spirals. And finally, a thousand samples of polypary I hadn't observed until then, the common sponge. The first division in the polyp group, the class 
Spongigaria had been created by scientists precisely for this unusual exhibit, whose usefulness is beyond departure. The sponge is definitely not a plant, as some naturalists believe it, but an animal of the lowest order, a polypary inferior to even coral. Its animal nature isn't in doubt, and we can't accept even the view of the ancients, who regarded it as halfway between plant and animal. But I must say that naturalists are not in agreement on the structural mode of sponges. For some, it's polypary, and for others, it's, uh, such as Professor Milne Edwards, it is a single, solitary individual. The class Eucharist contains 300 species that are encountered in a large number of the seas and even certain streams when they were given the name freshwater sponges. But by their water's choice are the Red Seas of the Mediterranean near the Greek islands on the coast of Syria. These waters witnessed the reproduction and growth of soft, delicate bath sponges whose price runs as high as 150 francs apiece, the yellow sponge from Syria, the horn sponge from Barbary, etc. But since I had no hope of studying these zoophytes in the seaports of the Levant, from which we were separated by the insuperable Ithsmiths of Suez, I had to be content with observing them in the waterways of the Red Sea. So I called Count Sal to my side, and while at an average depth of 8 to 9 meters, the Nautilus slowly skimmed every beautiful rock on the easterly coast. These sponges, uh, their sponges grow in every shape, globular, star-like, leaf-like, finger-like, with reasonable accuracy. They lived up to their names, basket sponge, chalice sponges, distaff sponges, elecorn sponges, lion's paws, peacock tails, and Neptune's gloves. Dis uh, designations bestowed on them by fishermen more poetically inclined than scientists. A gelatinous, semi-fluid substance coated the fibrous tissue of these sponges, and from this tissue there escaped a steady trickle of water that, after carrying the sustenance to each cell, was being expelled by contracting movement. These jelly-like substance, uh, this jelly-like substance disappears when a polyp dies, emitting ammonia as it rots. Finally, nothing remains but the fibers, um, either gelatinous or made of horn, that constitutes your household sponge which takes on a russet hue and is used for a variety of tasks depending on its degree of elasticity, permeability, or resistance to saturation. These polyparies were sticking to the rocks, shells of mollusks, and even stalks of water plants. They adorned the smallest crevices, some sprawling, others standing and hanging like coral outgrowths. I told Council that sponges are fished up in two ways, either by dragnet or by hand. The latter method calls for the service of a diver, but is preferable because it spares the polypary tissues, leaving it with a much higher market value. Other zoophytes swarming near the sponges cons consisted chiefly of a very elegant species of jellyfish. Mollusks were represented by varieties of squid that, according to Professor Orbingi, sure, uh, are unique to the Red Sea, and reptiles by Vertiga, Ver Vergata turtles belong to the genius who cares, who furnished, which furnished our table with dainty but a wholesome dish. As for fish, they were numerous and often remarkable. Here are the ones that the Nautilus's nets most frequently hauled on board. Rays, including spotted rays, which were oval in shape, brick red in color, their bodies strewn with erratic blue specks, identified by their jagged double stings. Silverback skates, common stingrays with stippled tails. Butterfly rays, they look like huge two-meter cloaks flapping in the mid-depth. Uh, toothless guitarfish, that are a type of card... Uh, card... Uh, fuck. Cartilage. Cartilaginous. Cartilaginous? Cartilaginous. Sure. Fish. Closer to the shark, trunk fish, known as dromedaries, that were one and a half feet long and had humps ending in backward curved stings, serpentine moray eels with silver tails and bluish backs, plus brown pectoral, uh, brown pectorals trimmed with gray piping, a species of butterfly fish, or butterfish, called the fiatola, decked out in thin gold strips, and three colors of the French flag. Montague Blennies, Montague Blennies, four decimeters long, superb jacks, handsomely embellished by seven black crosswise streaks with blue and yellow fins, plus gold and silver scales, snooks, standard mullets with yellow heads, parrotfish, wrasses, triggerfish, gobies, etc., plus a thousand other fish common to the oceans we had already crossed. On February 9th, the Nautilus cruised into the widest part of the Red Sea, measuring 190 miles straight across from 
Swakin to the other coast of Quinfija on the east coast. At noon that day, after our position fixed, Captain Nemo climbed on the platform where I happened to be. I vowed not to let him go uh, below again without at least sounding him out on his future plans. As soon as he saw me, he came over, graciously offered me a cigar, and said to me, Well, Professor, are you pleased with the Red Sea? Have you seen enough of its hidden wonders, its fishes and zoophytes, its gardens of sponges and forests of coral? Have you glimpsed the towns built on its shores? Yes, Captain Nemo, I replied. The Nautilus is wonderfully suited on this whole survey. Oh, it's a clever boat. Yes, sir, clever, daring, and invulnerable. It fears neither the Red Sea's dreadful storms nor its currents and reefs. Indeed, I said, the sea is mentioned as one of the worst, and in the days of the ancients, if I'm not mistaken, it had an abominable reputation. Thoroughly abominable, Professor Arnox. The Greek and Latin historians can find nothing to say in its favor. And the Greek geographers, Thrabo adds, it's especially rough during the rainy season and the period of summer prevailing winds. The Arab Idris, referring to it by name of Gulf of Kolzun, relates that the ship perished in large numbers on the sea banks and that no one risked navigating it by night. This, he claims, is a sea subject of fearful hurricanes, strewn with inhospitable islands and with nothing good to offer, either on its surface or in its depths. As a matter of fact, the same views can also be found in the Iranian Agatharchides and Artemidioris. Which, I'm pretty sure I butchered all three of those. But hey, that's fine. Sometimes, that's just how it goes. No matter how much we try, we fail. Constantly, constantly fail. One can easily, I answered. Um, one can easily see, I answered, that those historians didn't navigate aboard the Nautilus. Indeed, the captain replied with a smile. And in this respect, the moderns aren't much further along than the ancients. It took many centuries to discover the mechanical power of steam. Who knows whether we'll see a second Nautilus within the next 130 years. Progress is slow, Professor Arnox. It is true, but your ship is a century ahead of its time, perhaps several centuries. It would be most unfortunate if such a secret were to die with its inventor. Captain Nemo did not reply. After some minutes' silence, We were discussing, he said, the views of the ancient historians on the dangers of navigating the Red Seas. True, I replied. But weren't their fears exaggerated? Yes and no, Professor Arnox, seemed, answered Captain Nemo, who seemed to know his Red Sea by heart. To a modern ship well-rigged, solidly constructed, in control of the course, thanks to obedient steam, some conditions are no longer hazardous that offered all sorts of dangers to vessels of the ancients. Picture those early navigators venturing forth in sailboats built from planks lashed together with palm thread ropes, corked with powdered resin, and coated with dogfish grease. They didn't even have instruments for taking their bearings, and went by guesswork in the midst of currents they barely knew. Under such conditions, shipwrecks had to be numerous, but nowadays steamers providing full service between Suez and the South Sea have nothing to fear from the fury of this gulf. Despite the contrary winds of its monsoons, their captains and passengers no longer prepare for departure with sacrifices to placate the gods, and after returning they don't trips in wreaths and gold ribbons to say thanks at local temples. Agreed, I said. And steam seems to have killed off all gratitude in seamen's hearts. But since you seem to have made a special study of the sea, Captain, can you tell me how it got its name? Many explanations exist on the subject, Professor Arnox. Would you like to hear a view of one chronicler in the 14th century? Gladly. As fanciful fellow claims the sea was given its name after crossing to the Israelis, when the pharaoh perished in those waves that came together at Moses' command. Um, to mark that miraculous sequel, the sea turned red without equal. Thus, no other course would do but to name it for its hue. An artistic explanation, Captain Nemo replied, but I am able to rest content with it, so I'll ask you for your own personal views. Here they come, 
To my thinking, Professor Onyx, this Red Sea's designation must be regarded as a translation from the Hebrew word Edrom. And the ancient, if the ancients gave it that name, it was because of the unique color of its waters. Until now, however, I only see clear waves without any unique hue. Surely, but as we move ahead to the far end of the gulf, you'll note its odd appearance. I recall seeing the Bay of El Tour completely red like a lake of blood. Can you attribute this color to the presence of microscopic algae? Yes, it is a purplish, mucilaginous substance produced by those tiny buds known by the name of who cares. 40,000 of which I need to occupy the space of one square millimeter. Perhaps you uh, will encounter them when we reach El Tour. And Captain Nemo, this isn't the first time you've gone through the Red Sea aboard the Nautilus. No, sir. And since you've already mentioned crossing the Israelis and catastrophe befell the Egyptians, I would ask if you ever discovered any traces of underwater of the great historic event. No, Professor, and for an excellent reason. What's that? Because it is the same locality where Moses crossed with all his people. It is now so clogged with sand, camels can barely get their legs wet. You understand that my Nautilus won't have enough water for itself. And that locality is? asked. That locality lies a little above Suez in a sound that used to form a deep estuary that the Red Sea stretched as far as the Bitter Lakes. Now whether or not their crossing was literally miraculous, the Israelites... Israeli... Israelites. The Israelites did not did cross there in return to the Promised Land. Pharaoh's army did perish at precisely that locality. So I think that excavating those sands would bring to light many great weapons and tools of Egyptian origin. Obviously, I replied. For the sake of archaeology, let us hope that sooner than later such excavations do take place. Once new towns and settlements on the isthmus after the Suez Canal have been cut through. Canal, by the way, a little east to a ship such as the Nautilus. Surely, but of great use to the world at large, Captain Nemo said. The ancients well understood the usefulness that took commerce of connecting the Red Sea with the Mediterranean. But they never dreamed of cutting a canal between the two. Instead, they picked the Nile as their link. If we can trust tradition, it is probably Egypt's king, Sesotrice, who started digging the canal needed to join the Nile with the Red Sea. What's certain is that 615 BC, King Nekul II was out at work on a canal that fed, was fed by the Nile waters um, and ran through the Egyptian plains opposite Arabia. This canal could be traveled in four days, and it was so wide, two triple-tiered galleys could pass through it abreast. Its construction was continued by Darius the Great, son of Histopes. Sure. It probably completed by King Ptolemy II. Strabo used it for shipping, but the weakness um, of its slopes between its starting point near Bubatis and the Red Sea left it navigable only a few months out of the year. This canal served commerce until the century of Rome's Antonine Emperors, and it was abandoned and covered with sand, subsequently reinstated by Arabia's Caliph Omar I, finally filled in for good in 1761 or 1762 AD by Caliph al-Mansur, in an effort to prevent supplies from reaching Mohab in Abdulhal. Sure. We have rebelled against him. During his Egyptian campaign, your general Napoleon Bonaparte discovered traces of this old canal in Suez Desert. And when Tad caught him by surprise, he well nigh perished just a few hours before rejoining his regiment in Hajaroth, the very place where Moses has pitched camp 3,300 years before him. Well, Captain, when the ancient hesitate to undertake, Mr. De Lepsis is now finishing up. His joining of the two cities will shorten the route from Cadiz to the East Indies by 9,000 kilometers. It will soon change Africa into an immense island. Yes, Professor Arnox, you have every right to be proud of your fellow countrymen. Such a man brings a nation more honor than the greatest commanders. Like so many others, he began with the difficulties and setbacks, but he triumphed because he has the volunteer spirit. And it's sad to think that this deed, which should have been internationally deed, should have been an international deed. 
which would have ensured that an administration went down in history would succeed only through the efforts of one man. So all hail Mr. Delepsis. Yes, all hail that great French citizen, I replied, quite startled by how emphatically Nemo had just spoken. Unfortunately, he went on, I cannot take you through that Snuez Canal, but the day after tomorrow you'll be able to see the long jetties of Port Sad when we were in the Mediterranean. In the Mediterranean, I exclaimed. Yes, Professor, does that amaze you? What amazes me is you think we'll be there day after tomorrow. Oh, really? Yes, Captain. Although, since I've been aboard your vessel, I should have formed the habit of not being amazed by anything. But what is it that startles you? The thought of how, hideous fa how hideously fast the Nautilus will need to go if it's to double the Cape of Good Hope circle around Africa and lie in the open Mediterranean by the day after tomorrow. And who says it will circle Africa, Professor? What's the talk about doubling the Cape of Good Hope? But unless the Nautilus navigates on dry land or crosses over the Isthmus, or under it, Professor. Under it? Surely, Captain Nero replied sternly. Use that tongue of land nature uh, long ago made what man today is making on the surface. What? That's a passageway. Yes, an underground passageway I have named the Arabian Tunnel. It starts below Suez and leads to the Bay of Pelusemia. But isn't that Isthmus only composed of quicksand? To a certain depth, but at mere 50 meters, one encounters a firm foundation of rock. And it's by luck that you discovered this passageway, asked more and more startled. Luck and logic, Professor, and logic even more than luck. Captain, I hear you, but I can't believe my ears. Oh, sir, the old saying still holds goods. Or, oh, fucking. Or is habitant et not audit. Not only does, which is Latin for they have ears but hear not. So, not only does this passageway exist, but I've taken advantage of it on several occasions. Without it, I would not have ventured today uh, into such a blind alley as the Red Sea. Is it indiscreet to ask how you discovered this tunnel? Sir, Captain answered. There can be no secrets between men who will never leave each other. I ignored this innuendo and waited for Captain Nemo's explanations. Gross. Professor, he told me. The simple logic of the naturalist led me to discover the passageway, and I am alone and familiar with it. I noted that in the Red Sea and the Mediterranean there exists a number of absolutely identical species of fish. Eels, butterfish, greenfish, bass, jewelfish, flatfish. Certain of this fact, I wonder if there were a connection between the two seas. If there were, its underground current had to go from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean simply because of their difference in level. So I caught a large number of fish in the vicinity of Suez. I slipped copper rings around their tails, tossed them into the sea. A few months later off the coast of Syria, I recaptured a few specimens of my fish, adorned with their telltale rings. So this proved to me that some connection exists between the two seas. I searched for my Nautilus. I discovered it. I ventured into it. And soon, Professor, you will also have cleared my Arab um, Arabic tunnel. Ah, fun. Ah, funny found a sneaky-ass way. Isn't that neat? I wonder if it's real. Possibly? Probably. But I'm not gonna look it up because I'm lazy and tired and I wanna get to bed. Thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Upcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Next week we will continue our 20,000 Leagues adventures and a whole host of other stuff. Hope everybody's staying safe out there, and I'll see you all next time. Have a good one, everyone.